so it's great to be here at 42 West 44th Street, where I've spent a lot of time earlier in my legal career. Um, it will be interesting delivering this address with my law school classmate, Sam Seymour, staring at me there. By the way, um, you, all of you young people here, uh, I will tell you, you know you're getting old when in a place like this uh, there are portraits of people your age hanging up <laughs> on the wall. That's when you know you're getting old. Um, by the way, I want to introduce you to two brand new Paul Weiss first year associates, Jessica and Kyle, sitting over here. Now, part of our task in this room is to encourage young lawyers to join the New York City Bar Association. I read somewhere recently that membership in bar associations is dwindling. Frankly, as our profession becomes more introverted, the opportunities to bring in younger members of the bar into terrific bar associations such as this are becoming more challenging. So I hope that those of us who are active in the New York City Bar, which I know as the Association for the Bar of the City of New York, um, we dedicate ourselves to recruiting young people. Because this really, I believe this is the best bar association in the whole country, right here at this place. And I, I joined the New York City Bar shortly after I became a member of the bar. I served on its ethics committee in the 90s. I served on the Judiciary Committee in the late 90s. And then I served as chair of the Judiciary Committee from 2001 to 2004 after I came back from Washington the first time. Uh, I was told then this is the best committee of the city bar. And uh, it is definitely the busiest. The Judiciary Committee of the city bar rates and approves every candidate or nominee for judicial office in this city, Second Circuit, Southern District of New York, Eastern District of New York, the US attorneys, the DAs, uh, Supreme Court, Appellate Division, Supreme Court, Appellate Term, Supreme Court, Civil Court, Criminal Court, Housing Court, Family Court, and a few others I have probably forgotten. Uh, I'm pleased to see uh, my vice chair, Richard Zuckerman, and one of our members who I recruited, Jeff Nagel. In three years, in three years, I interviewed 500 people for, for judgeships, 500 people. The, the, the interview I will never forget was in uh, September 2001. It was right after the 9-11 attacks. And we rate the DAs. So that year, uh, Mr. Morgenthau was up for re-election. Everyone called him Mr. Morgenthau. No one calls him Bob. Mr. Morgenthau, except maybe Arthur Lyman. I heard him call Bob once, and I was shocked. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Morgenthau came in for his interview with the Judiciary Committee of the City Bar. So I had to interview Robert Morgenthau for his job. And he came in. And uh, Richard, I, you must have been there. And uh, he brought his writing sample. <laughs> um, and I found a way to ask him 
very diplomatically the question that every member of the committee wanted me to ask. So, Mr. Morgenthau, do you have in place a succession plan <laughs> in the event that something happens? Let's say you decide to seek higher office or something of that nature. And he looked at me and he said, yes, I do. <laughs> okay. Uh, next question. Um, what are you doing to campaign for re-election this year? And he said, I'm appearing before the City Bar Association. What else? <laughs> and uh, we voted him approved. But the Judiciary Committee of the City Bar really is terrific because you go, you learn a ton about this city. You go around, we, we do our interviews at all of the bar associations in every borough, every, every borough, every state court in every borough is a different legal community. And you learn about all the courthouse gossip about um, who's, 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 who has a, a, a terrible temper and who's way behind on their caseload and who's pro-defendant and pro-landlord and pro-tenant. And uh, it's, it, was a, it was an extraordinary interesting time and I'm sure those of you who served on the Judiciary Committee in this room will agree with me that it was a terrific experience. Um, <clears throat> I do believe it's our challenge in this Bar Association to dedicate ourselves to recruiting the next generation to our Bar Association. Let me turn to my public service. I've been associated with Paul Weiss off and on since 1984. I've left Paul Weiss and returned to it four times like a bad penny. First as an assistant U.S. attorney with SAM, then uh, general counsel of the Department of the Air Force from 1998 to the end of the Clinton administration, 2001. I came back to Paul Weiss for eight years. During the Bush years, I had met Barack Obama in 2006. We quickly became friends. He recruited me to his campaign. I was part of his campaign, his transition, then his administration, first as general counsel of the Department of Defense, how many of you here think you know how many lawyers there are in the Department of Defense? Who would like to take a guess? How many lawyers, Jess, how many lawyers in the U.S. Department of Defense? One hundred. Four hundred. Okay. 11,000, over 11,000 lawyers, and that's counting guard and reserve, so that technically is counting Lindsey Graham, but there are some 11,000 lawyers in the Department of Defense. I served in that position as the senior legal official of DOD for four years. I left, I returned to Paul Weiss in January 2013, thinking I was done with public office, and President Obama recruited me back eight months later to be Secretary of Homeland Security, a position I was totally shocked to be asked to do. I woke up every morning for a year not believing I was in the job. And um, <clears throat> you heard the large list of the missions of the Department of Homeland Security. I see you brought uh, Julia Preston here to keep me honest, former New York Times reporter, covered immigration. Uh, frankly, Julia Preston, in my experience, was the best reporter on immigration policy and law that I know. <laughs> she actually understands this stuff probably better than me. 
uh, and was refreshingly sober and objective on the issue. Every once in a while, I'd want her, I'd want her to get emotional in her reporting, but she just wouldn't do it. Uh, Julia is a terrific reporter. It's good to see you, Julia. So um, let me begin this discussion, and then I'll be happy to take questions on whatever topic you want to talk about. There's no, well, there, there's that one camera, but whatever topic you want to talk about. Uh, but those of you who serve, anyone served with me will tell you, I used to look forward to reading citizen mail, mail from concerned citizens of all ages, all places in the country. When I was general counsel of DOD, then Secretary of Homeland Security, and I collected my favorites. So, for example, there are a number of emails around the country which occasionally would get forwarded to me from Jay Johnson, the chief of Homeland Security, saying, I've got four and a half million dollars for you, waiting for you in a bank account in Africa. All you got to do is give me your, your social and, you know, it'll be here for you. Um, <clears throat> my favorite correspondence, and I'd read a representative sample, and my staff hated it when I read Citizen Mail, because I'd want to respond to it, either by picking up the phone to say, I'm so sorry you've waited 38 years for your green card, let's help you out, or I just want to write a response, because I thought it was important for those of us in high public office to communicate to the public, we hear you from time to time, and especially school kids. I used to really enjoy reading mail from school kids. So here's one of my favorites. This is from a little town called Church Point, Louisiana. A school child named Brody addressed to the Pentagon 1600 Defense Pentagon, Washington, D.C., 20310. Dear sir or madam, this is addressed to a building. <laughs> now, everyone here, almost everyone I'm sure, has had kids. You remember what it's like to have a child who is a junior high school student or a high school student and what they think and how they think? This is classic. <clears throat> Hello there. My name is Brody Dobbs, and I'm a student at Karen Crow High in Louisiana doing research for my English class. The topic I have chosen is the rules of war and what they exactly are. Since this introduction is done, let us get down to business. <laughs> what exactly are the rules of war? I ask because I am aware of the many military personnel that enter and leave the Pentagon daily. If you can't answer my question, my apologies, and have a wonderful day. <laughs> if you can answer my question, could you be ever so kind as to reply? It would be an honor to me if you did. Again, thank you for your valuable time spent on reading and, hopefully, replying to my question and giving me the needed information to finish my project. Also, my teacher is forcing me to ask you if you have any shirts or unneeded items lying around. If so, could you please send them to me? It isn't necessary for you to do so. I was just forced with asking you this question. My shirt size is extra large. Thank you and have a splendid day. So this letter addressed to the Pentagon, 
Somebody in the mailroom of the Pentagon saw laws of war and said, ah, oh, legal. Send it to the office of the general counsel. And it wound up in the inbox of the general counsel of the Department of Defense. And I could not resist but to answer this. <laughs> so I wrote back, dear Brody, my name is Jay Johnson. I am the general counsel of the Department of Defense. I write in response to your October 1 letter. For starters, you may be interested to know that though your letter was addressed to the Pentagon generally and no one by name, and there are over 10,000 civilian and military lawyers in the Department of Defense, your letter found its way to the desk of the top lawyer in this department, and I answered, I'm answering it personally. Now that that introduction is done, let us get down to business. You ask about the rules of war. The rules of war, also known as the laws of war, govern the conduct of war. The law of war has developed over 100 years of state practice and is found in treaties, customary international law, and U.S. law. The United States and all other nations are expected to adhere to the law of war. Violations of the law of war can lead to prosecution for a war crime. And then I go through some examples of what the law of war represents, military necessity, humanity, distinction, perfidy, and so forth. I could go on and on. Part of my job is to ensure that the U.S. military abides by the law of war in everything we do. This is not just a matter of respect for the law. The United States must set the example for other nations and by our respect for law be a source of moral authority throughout the world in the hope that war can be avoided and the law of war need not ever be used at all. Thank you for your interest in national security. Finally, here's a t-shirt on me. Though you say you were forced to ask, one other lesson I hope you have learned from this response is that in life it never hurts to ask. I recommend that you share this letter with your schoolmates but not the t-shirt. So um, I served as Secretary of Homeland Security for 1,124 days, 37 months. I had an app on my phone my last year in office that counted down the days, hours, minutes until January 20, 2017 at noon when an alarm was going to go off at exactly noon and I had fantasized for a year about what I was going to do when that alarm went off and I was relieved and I could go back to being a private citizen. I was going to, at the moment, the new president, whoever that might be, uh, took the oath. I would push back from my desk at DHS on Nebraska Avenue I would wave goodbye to my Secret Service detail, and I would get in my own car filled with stuff, drive up 95 in the Jersey Turnpike uh, to my permanent home in Montclair, New Jersey, and wake up that following Saturday morning a normal person. That was my fantasy. It did not work out that way. I got selected for the second time to be the designated survivor. Now, a lot of people are really fascinated with the concept of being the designated survivor, the person in the presidential line of succession who has to go off to an undisclosed location while all of the others are in one place 
like a State of the Union or an inauguration, and <clears throat> you go into this place, and it's, since it's an undisclosed location, I can't disclose to you where it is, um, but I got this duty twice, State of the Union 2016, and I was very disappointed because when you're there for a State of the Union, it's exciting and you get to wave to mom at C-SPAN and everything. And I, Johnson, you're the designated survivor. You've got to go off to the undisclosed location. I will tell you that it's not as exciting as you think it is, except you get to bring the White House chef with you. And then when the president's back in the residence, you get to go home. And I got this duty a second time on Inauguration Day. And because everybody in the cabinet is resigning, and there's a whole new cabinet that has to still be confirmed by the Senate, that means that the designated survivor has to go off to an undisclosed location, but also remains into the next administration until the successor is selected. So for seven hours and 32 minutes past noon on January 20th, I was the entirety of Donald Trump's cabinet. <laughs> You're looking at, therefore, the first person to resign from Donald Trump's administration. Now, what, what's interesting is that there are law professors, Ivy League law professors, who have suggested to me, why didn't you invoke the 25th Amendment when you had the chance? More than half of yourself could have just written that, that letter. Uh, but I did, I did not do that. <clears throat> so um, this is an intelligent, thoughtful audience. And I'm sure that you have questions. Let me just touch on a couple of things. Um, when I came into office as Secretary of Homeland Security, counterterrorism, because I had spent so much time on it as the senior legal official of DOD, was uppermost on my mind. And I would say in speeches that counterterrorism needs to be the cornerstone of the department's mission. I believe that that continues to be true and should continue to be true, except that our government's counterterrorism mission since the creation of DHS in 2002 has changed significantly, has evolved significantly. Those in Congress, when DHS was created, it was the largest reorganization of the U.S. government since the creation of the Department of Defense in 1947 thought that by consolidating into one cabinet-level department, all the different ways in which one can enter the country and safeguarding those, you defeat terrorism. So by putting under the purview of one cabinet-level officer border security, aviation security, maritime security, port security, <clears throat> you prevent terrorism. Because the thinking then was that terrorism is something that would only infiltrate our borders from overseas. And 9-11 is a classic example of what we refer to as a terrorist-directed style attack, where a terrorist organization and the leaders of a terrorist-directed organization, a terrorist organization, bin Laden, KSM, would direct operatives to leave wherever they came from, enter our borders, and carry out a large-scale attack in the United States. The terrorist threat to our nation is now fundamentally different. We deal with smaller scale attacks, which we refer to as terrorist-inspired attacks, 
where an organization overseas will inspire through the internet somebody who is already here, homegrown, homeborn, to commit an act of self-radicalized violence, which is a much harder threat to detect and to prevent because it is less predictable. Our government now does a better job of connecting the dots, particularly our intelligence community, and detecting plots from overseas at their earliest stages. Where we're challenged is detecting and preventing those who self-radicalize in secret because of something they see on the internet. Anwar Alaki, who is the most visible member of Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, was killed by a drone strike on September 30, 2011. But as an inspiration and as a recruitment tool, Anwar Alaki actually lives on. And so this is what we refer to as the terrorist-inspired threat. In my judgment, conventional traditional law enforcement uh, as well as engaging the public, public vigilance and awareness, and, and this is something I devoted myself to a lot, engaging communities across this country from which terrorist organizations may seek to recruit. So my time in office, my 1,124 days, one of the things I did was visit every major metropolitan area with a significant American Muslim community to talk to them about building bridges. My fear is that that particular mission, which we refer to as CVE, Countering Violent Extremism, has trailed off. I quickly became to realize, I quickly came to realize that the other cornerstone of DHS's mission has to be cybersecurity. It's not just a threat. We live with cyber attacks on our homeland daily, hourly, from nation states, from criminals, from hacktivists, those who engage in, in ransomware, and we have yet to turn the corner in dealing with the cyber threat to our country. Those on offense are increasingly aggressive and tenacious and ingenious, and those of us on defense in the public and private sectors struggle to keep up. I'm sure you've all read about the threat to our election infrastructure Cybersecurity, in my assessment, state election officials are catching up. They got a late start at hardening election infrastructure cybersecurity, but in some states, more than others, they've been leaders, but we struggle to keep up on that. The greater threat to our elections and our democracy, in my view, is fake news and extremist views, which has a component of cybersecurity in it. <clears throat> we should not as a way of dealing with that, however, seek in this free society to regulate speech and political debate. That is a dangerous road to go down. Imagine how that authority, if you gave it to them, could be exercised by those in power today who don't like what they read in the news. Last, immigration, Julia's topic. I have to say that in my time in public office, I dealt with a lot of difficult issues, signing off on targeted lethal force, the repeal of don't ask, don't tell, uh, gay marriage in the military, Guantanamo Bay military commissions. Immigration was the most difficult issue I dealt with because there was a lot of misinformation, a lot of emotion, 
wrapped around the issue. There are those who seek to exploit illegal migration for political purposes, to stoke fear and anxiety. It's an extraordinarily difficult subject. But let me give you my, my top-line assessment. First, the fact is that illegal immigration, and Julia knows these numbers as well as I do, illegal immigration is a fraction of what it used to be on our southern border. Apprehensions are how we measure total attempts to cross the border illegally. Apprehensions are an indicator of total attempts to cross the border. The high was 1.6 million in fiscal year 2000. In recent years, 2013, 14, 15, 16, 17, that number is a fraction of what it used to be. So in FY13, it was something like 414,000 apprehensions. In FY14, when we had a spike, uh, the kids you saw on the border, it reached 474,000. I lived these numbers. I would look at these numbers. I probably shouldn't have done this, but I would look at the apprehensions from the day before every morning when I came to work on the southern border to track this. I probably got too involved by looking at it daily. It's like looking at a stock price daily. And my staff could tell you, if the number was low, it was going to be a good day. If the number was high, it was going to be a bad day. 40, uh, 2014, 474,000. FY15, my second year in office, it was around 330,000. We had the second lowest number of apprehensions since 1972. FY16, it began to creep up again into the low 400,000s. FY17, Donald Trump's first year in office, it dropped off to the lowest number since the 1970s, to just 303,000. Then what happened? Toward the end of 17, it started to creep up again. <clears throat> FY18 now, we're seeing numbers at the same levels as 14, and 15, and 16. Because and this is the lesson learned when it comes to illegal migration. And my Republican predecessor, Mike Chertoff, first clued me into this. When we were in the midst of dealing with the spike in 14, I called Mike in, and he said to me something very interesting, which I've never forgotten and I think is true. Illegal migration patterns react sharply to information in the information marketplace about perceived changes in enforcement policy, like, like information about a company, how it reacts in the stock market. And so in FY14, the way we dealt with illegal migration, the spike we were seeing in May, June of that year, was, first of all, put out a public relations campaign about the dangers of the journey through Mexico uh, and the dangers of putting your child in the hands of a smuggler. And the demographic, by the way, over the last 18 years for illegal migration has totally changed. It's no longer a single adult from Mexico. It's now women and children from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. We put out messaging about the dangers of the journey which in my view worked only to a limited extent. We worked with the Mexican government and actually got the Mexican government to help us on their southern border to stop the flood of migrants crossing their southern border, which was a much smaller border. And then the third thing we did, which was controversial, is we expanded family detention. And that was controversial. 
I, I made a big deal out of it. I publicized it. The numbers dropped off sharply. They dropped off by July 2014. The numbers had fallen off. I was reluctant to declare victory. Uh, and by August 2014, they were very low. And then in FY15, we had the second lowest number of apprehensions since 1972. But when you do these things and inject that shock into the system, like someone like a Donald Trump taking office, the effect is short term at best. And what happens is illegal migration always reverts to its longer term trends and patterns as long as the underlying push factors still exist, as long as the poverty and the violence in Central America continue to exist, parents will make the same basic calculation in their mind. It is more dangerous for me and my child to stay here than to risk the journey to the United States. So I'm leaving. I'm out of here. And I spent hundreds of hours talking to kids on the southern border. I probably went to South Texas 12 times in three years. And I'd always ask the kids and the parents the same thing. Why did you come here? Did you see the dangers? Did you see the messaging about the dangers of the journey? Yes, but if I stayed, the gangs were going to kill me. Or the, the gangs were going to kill my 12-year-old. My so I had to leave. I had no choice. And so by fiscal year 16, the numbers started to creep up again. And I believe that it was because the pattern was reverting to normal, because of the underlying conditions. I also believe that the election dynamic was a factor where you had one candidate saying, I won't deport you unless you commit a crime, and the other candidate saying, I'm deporting everybody. So it created sort of a, a rush for the exits. And then when President Trump got into office, just through his rhetoric, not because he built a single additional foot of wall or hired a single additional border agent, just through his rhetoric, the numbers dropped off sharply in the first half of 17. And then it started to creep up again. They had the, a very low year in 17. But by FY18, the numbers were back to FY14, 15, 16 levels to President Trump's great frustration. And you know, he took away one of his talking points. And so what did they do in May? They went to the zero tolerance policy of supposedly prosecuting everybody. Now, in fact, they didn't prosecute everybody. There was some prosecutorial discretion that went into that. But it was messaged as a zero tolerance policy where the parent would be put into the criminal justice system and be run through a guilty plea and then deported soon thereafter, the result of which is you have to separate the child from the parent because the child can't be in DOJ custody with the parent. And they made a big deal out of it. The Attorney General made a big deal out of it. They all made a big deal out of it as a deterrent. Now, there were several problems with that. One, it was hugely controversial, even more controversial than anything I did. And that was the one thing I would not do, separate a parent from his or her child. I still have the image burned into my mind when I'd visit Border Patrol stations and these facilities of women clinging, literally clinging to their babies. I could not pull a child out of a mother's hands, nor could I ask 
a Border Patrol agent or an ICE officer to do that. It was the one thing we would not do. But they went to this policy, and it was never going to be sustainable. You cannot run 20, 30, 40,000 people a month through the federal criminal justice system in the Southwest. There's not the space to detain them. The system can't handle that number of arraignments, indictments, pleas, probation, supervised release. The system can't handle that. It wasn't designed to handle that in the Southwest. There's just not enough space. It was never going to be sustainable. It was hugely controversial. And it was bound to fail in the long term. And a month or a month and a half after, they suspended the practice. And <clears throat> the deterrent effect was minimal at best. August 2018, which is typically a down month because of the heat in the Southwest, was a peak month. The numbers went up again in August. And I'm told it may or may not be released yet that September looks like August. So this hugely controversial practice probably had minimal effect on illegal migration at best. Moral of the story, because I lived this for three years, is we're never going to effectively deal with illegal migration and secure our border unless we deal with the underlying problem in Central America, the push factors. The push factors are always more powerful than any deterrent or any level of border security you can provide on our southern border. And you know, build a wall, sounds, it sounds like a good bumper sticker. It sounds nice to some people's ears. Now, in fact, over the 1,900 miles of southern border, we already have a wall in the places where it makes sense to have a wall. Pursuant to an act of Congress in 06, we built a wall or a fence over 700 miles of the 1,900 miles in the places where it makes sense to have a wall on our southern border. Our southern border is desert, it's mountains, and it's the Rio Grande, and it's some urban areas. But ask yourself, how much sense does it make to spend billions of dollars to build a 10-foot wall on top of a 10,000-foot mountain? Because if a migrant is strong enough and motivated enough to climb the 10,000-foot mountain, I assure you they will find a way over the 10-foot fence. And you cannot build a wall along the Rio Grande. The Rio Grande is like this. If you're on a boat on the Rio Grande, it is so windy you can easily forget which side is the U.S. side, which side is the Mexican side. You can't build a wall through a windy river. And if you tried to build a wall in southwest Texas, we'll spend years in condemnation proceedings in court trying to take ranchers' property from them. And so the answer, if you talk to true border security experts, free of the politics, is more surveillance, more equipment, more boats, more planes, more lights, more roads, more vehicles, uh, more mobile surveillance, more aerial surveillance, and we have to address the underlying conditions. Meanwhile, we have to reckon with the population that is already here. By some estimates, and it's hard to measure, there are approximately 11.5, 11.3 million undocumented who are in this country now. They go to school with your kids and your grandkids. They have driver's licenses. 
and more than half of them have been here in excess of 10 years. They're not going away. Uh, they're not going to self-deport. So do we insist that this population continue to grow and age and become members of our society in the shadows, off the books, cutting our grass, waiting our tables, or doing other things? Or do we bring them out of the shadows, encourage them to submit to a background check, get on the books, and be accountable? And that's a hard question for many people to wrestle with, but it's basic common sense and reality that we should go down that path as long as they're here, people who've been here a number of years without it becoming a magnet for further illegal migration. So <clears throat> those are my basic views based upon a hard and bitter experience with this difficult issue. The one last thought I will leave you with, and this is alluded to earlier, I believe that homeland security, national security, whether it's border security, aviation security, um, maritime security, has to be a balance between our basic physical liberties and our basic physical security and our civil liberties. The things we value and cherish about our values in this country. Uh, those of us in national security the essence of our job is to strike the right balance between preserving your values and preserving your security. They go too far in one direction, push the pendulum too far in one direction, the public will react accordingly. And so the essence of what we must do is to protect the public, protect our homeland, but also protect our values and protect our liberties. So thanks. Happy to take questions. Thank you, Eric. Welcome, Mr. Secretary. Um, I know you take uh, election security very seriously. In the spring of 2016, you and the President were advised of the, we'll just use a simple phrase, Russian hacking into our election systems. I'd like to ask you what you think you could have or should have done that you didn't and that you could share with us. And going forward, what should we be doing now, assuming the administration, this administration, were willing and able to do so, what should be uh, done in the, in the current atmosphere? So um, a little bit of history. Over the summer of 2016, there was a rising tide of awareness that the DNC had been hacked, both from open source information and through our own sources in the government. And by late 2016, it was very apparent to us that it was the Russian government that was behind the hack and that it had been directed at the highest levels by Vladimir Putin himself. At the same time, we became aware 
that certain states had what we referred to as scanning and probing activities around their voter registration databases. That was late summer 2016. And so then the question became, well, what to do about it? In my judgment, and Jim Clapper shared this view, and others did ultimately, we had to tell the American public what we knew at the time. And so we did. On October 7th, the infamous Friday, October 7th, Jim and I issued a statement with the President's approval that apprised the public of what we knew at the time. I wanted to include something about what we saw with election cybersecurity, and we did, but we were not at that moment in a position to say it was the Russian government. We said it was coming from a Russian platform, but we said <clears throat> we've concluded that the Russian government is behind the hacks because we thought that the American public was entitled to know what we knew and it would be unforgivable if we did not inform the public before the election during the campaign. Now, to get there, we wrestled with a lot of cross-considerations. It was not an easy decision. It's not something you just tweet about at 6 o'clock one morning. First, there's always a serious discussion around compromising sources and methods and declassifying something that is highly classified and highly sensitive. Second, rightfully so, the national security apparatus of our government was reluctant to jump into the middle of an election season and be perceived as taking sides or being perceived as saying that there's a foreign government that favors one candidate over another. At a time when Mr. Trump was saying the election's going to be rigged, they're going to do something to rig the election. That also meant hesitating, injecting the president personally into this. And there are various people at the table in the Situation Room who were saying, just by making such a statement, you're playing into the Russian playbook because you're calling in to question the legitimacy and the credibility of our democracy itself. And so, and I'm quite sure there were people looking at the polls at the time, and she had a comfortable lead. So we came out the way we did in terms of making the statement. There was then a dis discussion about will we take action by way of sanctions now before the election or after the election, and we decided to come back to that after the election. My big regret, and <clears throat> Jerry, there's always, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, there's always, always things you could say, well, I should have done this, I should have done that. But in national security, when you make a difficult decision, there's always going to be somebody who's going to second guess you, and then there's going to be somebody to say, why, didn't you, why did you do it at all, and why didn't you do it sooner? But I recall vividly what the considerations were at the time, and I'm comfortable that we did the right thing with what we had at the time. Um, but um, it did not get, the statement did not get the publicity that we thought it would get because it was overwhelmed that same day by the Access Hollywood video that was released a couple of hours later and then the next two days the debate and you know is, is 
is Trump really bringing the women from President Clinton's past life to the debate? Is he going to drop out? Is he going to flame out? Has he finally crashed and burned? And the, the mainstream media, um, I thought it was going to be big news, but it was literally, literally below the fold news in the New York Times and the Washington Post the next day. And the press didn't really come back to it until December when, oh my God, the Russians interfered in our election. Yes, we, they did. So um, it, it, it would be easy for me to say we should have done A, B, C. But I recall vividly what the considerations were at the time and am comfortable that given what we knew at the time, we did the right thing. Going forward, um, I worry about our voter registration databases, the security around those. I think state election officials are getting better at what they're doing. And this is ultimately in the hands of several thousand state and local election officials. Federal elections are not the province of the federal government. You know, a federal tax return is the province of the federal government. But a federal election, no. It's in the hands of a county official in Georgia and uh, a state official in North Dakota, because that's the way they insist that our democracy run. So when I first floated the idea in August 2016 of declaring election infrastructure uh, as critical infrastructure at the federal level to help them, I got an extraordinary level of pushback. You're trying to take over. You're trying to issue binding operational directives. This is our job. Get out. And there was a lot of misapprehension and anxiety about that, which um, we've faced over the last two years. But um, I think state election officials are, are better, they're getting better at what they, where they were. I think that the election process itself should not be anywhere on the internet. Um, it should be totally offline and there needs to be multiple redundancies, whether that means paper or not. I don't really have a view, but there needs to be multiple redundancies, the ability to audit an election result. Um, and um, in general, more cybersecurity around our voter registration data, which, and the degrees to which it is transparent, as you know, vary from state to state. This is one of the foremost election lawyers we have in the whole country right here, so. Okay. Julia, I saw you taking notes, so I knew, oh, oh boy. I will take notes. Yeah, I, my question is about the border. Uh, so the Trump administration has, e even though the family separation aspect of the zero tolerance policy is no longer in effect, most other aspects of the policy are in effect and part of that involves massive expansion of detention of asylum seekers. And as you know, the administration, I think, is seeking to uh, some kind of permanent expansion of the period that families can be detained at the at Dillian Carnes and the family centers that you set up. And and in addition to that, they are using emergency measures to put to to take some of the children, the unaccompanied children, out of the HH uh, the the homeland the uh, health department uh, shelters and put them in the tent camp, for example, that we've seen in Tornillo, Texas, with these big tents and out in the desert uh, near El Paso. So my question is twofold. 
would it be, how would you see uh, the administration's effort to expand its authorities to detain families, including children, uh, for an unlimited period of time, which is essentially what they're seeking, and what do you think of this policy of uh, prolonging the detention of the unaccompanied children? So the way it works now, under our existing legal landscape, when a, when a child crosses the southern border without a parent, that child is considered an unaccompanied, uh, an unaccompanied child, and, or UAC. And under the law, when that happens, DHS has 48 hours to turn that child over to HHS. HHS has these big shelters that are run by private contractors. They endeavor to find placement for the child in the best interest of the child. Very often the child has a family member already living in the United States, which is why the child was sent here in the first place, and they end up placing the child in a matter of days or weeks with the family member, and very little follow-up is done because they just don't have the resources. If the child enters with a parent, that group is considered a family unit, and this is a new phenomenon because, as I said, the demographic has changed. It's now families. In 2014, we had 34,000 beds for immigration detention, but only 95 of those 34,000 were equipped for families because, as a government, we were so used to single adults crossing the border illegally, but not as families. And so <clears throat> that was the principal reason why I established an expansion of family detention, simply because we were woefully unprepared to deal with this new wave, this new influx. But even with 34,000 or 44,000 beds, when migrants are crossing at a rate of 20, 30, 40,000 a month, that's only a fraction of the total population. So most are released on conditions that supposedly ensure their return to, to immigration court. Now, to, to Julia's question, when we expanded family detention in 2014, we ran into a case in California called Flores. Flores was and is a case pending in the Central District of LA in front of a judge, Judge Jolly, Dolly G. It's an old case, over 20 years old and it was settled in 1997 and the plaintiff class were unaccompanied children and the settlement was from 1997 that unaccompanied kids can only be held in non-secure licensed facilities they cannot be put in immigration detention that was the settlement in early 2015 or late 2014 the plaintiff class said to us, you're violating this settlement by putting families in detention. And our response was, wait a minute, these are families. These are not, these are not unaccompanied kids. The settlement concerned unaccompanied kids. But frankly, the settlement agreement was not well drafted and could be read to cover kids who are with their parents. And that's the way the district judge saw it. And that's the way the circuit judges saw it. And that ruling in my view, actually played a role in the increase in migration 
that we saw in 2015. The rulings came in 2015. Remember I said illegal migration reacts sharply to information in the marketplace about perceived changes. Well, this was one of them. And so <clears throat> we opposed that effort, and I still believe that the Flores case was wrongly decided, strictly as a legal matter. I believe that our immigration officials should have the tools and the flexibility to deal with uh, influxes, to deal with spikes in illegal migration. I wouldn't go so far as to say, well, yeah, well, they should be able to detain people indefinitely. I think that it is one of the tools that our border security people should have, along with ankle bracelets and other things that are intended to ensure a return to immigration court. Uh, but the Flores decision, the way we implemented it was we said, all right, average length of stay at a detention facility should be 20 days. Average length of stay for the whole population. And that's the way it's been implemented ever since then. But it does create a restraint on the ability to deal with an influx when you have to release people uh, so soon after they're, they're brought in. Um, <clears throat> your other question about, about unaccompanied kids, I think that, well, first of all, there's an inherent problem with trying to hold on to, to kids and put kids through an immigration court proceeding, a five-year-old or a seven-year-old or a 12-year-old, particularly without legal representation. And <clears throat> this is something we struggled with in 2014. It's something that the current administration struggles with now. And we actually encouraged, the Attorney General and I then encouraged bar associations to step forward and offer lawyers up pro bono to help represent these children in immigration court. It's a, it's a terrible problem and it's going to exist no matter whether you expand detention, limit detention, provide greater representation, it's, it's going to exist so long as the poverty and the violence in Central America persist as well. So, yes sir. First question, and the second is, would you care to comment about the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation? Ah, the question is about Justice Kavanaugh. So um, I'll start with this. I've been through three Senate confirmations myself, and I never want to do another. Um, you, during the length of the time you are a nominee, you feel a little bit like a hostage. You feel very vulnerable because anybody can take a shot at you publicly. You're just kind of sitting there. I'll never forget <clears throat> the day I was nominated to be Secretary of Homeland Security, the day after. My hometown paper from where I grew up, where my parents still live, the Poughkeepsie Journal, ran two full pages on Jay Johnson growing up in Wappingers Falls, New York. Um, <laughs> They, they, my, my parents' phone number was listed in the phone book, so they just called my dad up, and I'm reading in the newspaper quotes from my dad, and it's, Dad, you can't talk to the press without talking to me first. You know, he's thinking it's a small town paper, it's fine, it, no, it's the internet, it's out there on the internet, no! But on page two, 
in the middle of the full-page story about me and Royce Ketchum High School and running track and everything, there was this box that's because they're going to do another story the next day. If anybody out there has any information they'd like to provide about Jay Johnson, call this number. I go, oh, my God. I, this is where I grew up. Uh, and so I survived. Um, but when you're, when you're in the process, you do feel a little, you feel very vulnerable uh, because basically anybody can come forward with, with anything that could derail the process. So <clears throat> Susan Collins, I, I disagree with her bottom line, but I thought that her remarks on the Senate floor were very reasonable. You can tell that she took great pains to think through the issue of whether or not she would vote yes. I think she was acting and thinking total good faith free of the partisan politics to get to a very difficult right result. I disagree with her about the, the level of proof. You know, we lawyers, we always want to know what the levels and standards are. And the Republicans very effectively painted it as if it was proof beyond a reasonable doubt. It's not a criminal trial. It's whether or not the person should be confirmed to be a justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. The way she said, the way she cast it was more likely than not you know, a civil court standard. My view, it's, is there credible evidence directed at you that cannot be refuted? Is there credible evidence? Is there a credible allegation? So if similar allegations had come out during the vetting process, before he was out of the box, or any other nominee for any other position, I don't think he ever would have gotten out of the box. Why should the standard be different once the nomination is, is public. Uh, I worry that this whole episode will lead to a degradation in the prestige and integrity of the Supreme Court itself. And, you know, we can all stipulate how terrible it was um, for various different reasons, and it was terrible. It was a sorry, terrible episode in our history. And, um, I just hope that the Supreme Court, as an institution, can weather this storm. What's that? Did, he, did I ever hear from him again? No. No. Never heard from Brody again. Uh, I, I, um, when I, what was interesting is when I'd get several of these letters from the same class in the same school, and it was obvious that it was a letter-writing campaign, I would say, well, why don't, we, why don't I just have a video teleconference with the class? And the kids would get such a huge kick out of it. There was this one school in Oklahoma where three kids from the seventh grade wrote to me, and I said, well, I'll just have a, why don't I just have a video teleconference with the class and take questions? And the school was so excited. They had, they had a... a a, a, hold a, a room, the entire auditorium of the school was piped in and in my view the message that was sent to five or seven hundred school kids was your government really does hear you and it was an opportunity for these kids to personally connect with a senior member of their government that they never thought they would have and I'm sure it made a difference for them when you know, a local politician came to my high school to talk to our class, it made a huge impression on me, and I wanted to do the same for, for these kids.
kids. One more question. Yes, sir. I remember uh, when your appointment uh, as uh, the Secretary of DHS was announced, Julia was just ecstatic. And uh, while she can't be emotional when she's writing, she is, feels very strongly about uh, the importance of good government. My reaction was, why is this brilliant and hugely capable uh, young lawyer taking this job, Department of Homeland Security? I've been handling uh, asylum cases for 10 or 15, 20, 30 years, and I've watched the system change and grow worse every year. And when they created that agency and put what INS used to do into it, I thought they're just giving, they're just creating a, an agency for all the bad jobs that have to be done in Washington and you were suddenly running it. When you were speaking just now, uh, you hit the nail on the head in terms of, I think, in terms of how we need to deal with our immigration crisis, which is to address the conditions that are causing Central Americans to come here. And uh, it's the real problem, um, Julia, I know Julia from El Salvador in the 1980s. North Americans don't remember that war we were waging there that created conditions that still exist. Mar Salva Maratrucha was invented in Los Angeles because of that war. Uh, they don't know what happened in Guatemala. They don't know that we overthrew in the CIA's second successful coup and an elected president in 1984 and, or 1954 and that we secretly um, uh, supported a covert conflict in Guatemala that was a genocide of Mayans. And uh, so I, I'm wondering whether you ever mentioned that to the president uh, and, you know, that we ought to get these other agencies. It's the only job that DHS doesn't have. It's the State Department's job. It's the U.S. International Assistance Agencies. It's, it's uh, other people's jobs. Did you ever mentioned that at the time, and do you think there's anything that ought to be done now to educate North Americans about why all these people are here and the importance of doing what's necessary to change conditions in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala that we helped to create? The, well, the answer to your first question is, it would be easy for me to say I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, but if I had to do it all over again, I'd still say yes just because public service is in my blood. The job of being the senior lawyer for the Department of Defense actually was a lot harder. Um, <clears throat> I didn't have some of the job benefits I got as Secretary of Homeland Security with the plane and the security, and we got to go to state dinners. So it was, it was kind of cool. It had its moments. So I got to throw out a first pitch at a Mets game. Um, <laughs> I threw out four first pitches, never threw a strike. Um, I had, I took two trips to Guatemala. The second was for the inauguration of the new president, Jimmy Morales, in January 2016. And I got to know him a little bit, and I had high hopes for Morales. He is a charismatic leader has tried to create a lot of optimism in his country, and he's now gotten mired in his own set of scandals. In 2016, Congress started on the right road by appropriating $750 million for Central America with lots of strings attached 
but it's been going in the wrong direction. It's been 750, then 650, then 550. So they're trimming the amount, which I think is exactly the wrong way to do things. And we've done this before, you know, the so-called Plan Columbia. We've done this before. We, through the right set of investments, can help address poverty, violence, law enforcement, corruption in these countries. And that's, that's simply an investment we have to make, uh, in my view. Otherwise, at one point during the, the crisis in 2014, I asked one of my folks, is there a point at which they're just, we're just going to empty out these countries and there are not going to be any more women and children left to flee? And the answer is no. Uh, it just, it's, it's an endless population of people. So you can't expect it to just subside on its own. They're going to keep coming, especially if <clears throat> more and more families are already here. So um, I, think, I think we just have to go down that road. <clears throat> I, I heard from one of, the, one of those moments where something rings so true was from someone from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops who said to me, you can't padlock a burning building. You have to provide an alternative exit to people. So investment in Central America, investment in encouraging neighboring countries like in Costa Rica and Mexico and Panama to develop their own refugee resettlement system where they can at least go temporarily to be screened and monitored, and working with the government of Mexico. Mexico ought to be able to develop its own refugee resettlement system so they don't just simply migrate north to the United States. Be interesting to see what the new administration in Mexico's policy is to this issue. Many people in Mexico believe that migration is a human right. Uh, so anyway, thank you all very much for your interest. We appreciate it.